get that piano going this time of day. It is Saturday morning. And welcome everybody to Inside the Outdoors where we got uh, you know, we got an unusual topic or at least not a normal topic because it's the time of year when we kind of start to think about all the spring hunts, the spring fishing and everything else and obviously we'll talk about fishing because what would this show be without fishing segments? But we're also going to talk to a gentleman today, one of the wildlife coordinators in the state, who will talk to us about turkey hunting. Now, I know a lot of you have probably not hunted turkeys. A lot of you, maybe like I am, have been curious and thought one of these springs I am going to do it. It just hasn't turned up to be one of these springs yet. But um, it can be. The spring turkey hunt is on. For the open hunt, you can buy permits until the end of the season. We'll talk about that. And Dax Mangus will uh, join us this morning and joins us actually right now, one of our wildlife coordinators, to talk about the turkey season, what we ought to know about spring turkey hunts, what we need to know about turkeys in general, what we need to know about turkeys in Utah. And, um, and maybe it'll just pique your curiosity and you might decide that you want to uh, that you want to participate through the uh, turkey hunt, which actually uh, the general season runs from April the 29th to May the 31st. So you've got a while before you have to do it, and um, that is a general hunt. And things have changed a little bit probably this spring because of the weather. So without further ado, let's bring in Dax and let's talk a little bit about maybe uh, what a normal spring turkey hunt might look like and what the one this year could look like and how it might be a little different. Dax, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Great to have you here. Well, thanks. I'm excited to talk about turkeys. Uh, In the state of Utah, the the outlook on turkeys is bright. It's a good one. Our turkey populations are, are as healthy, as big as they've ever been. And uh, if you've ever thought about hunting turkeys, now's the time. Get out and give it a shot. And uh, you'll find that it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's also pretty challenging. It, it's harder than some people, <laughs> some people maybe think. They, they are pretty smart birds, and, and they're a lot of fun to hunt, and they're a challenge. Now, what part of the state is our best turkey population? Um, probably the, the southern and central part of the state is where we have, uh, you know, really strong turkey populations, and we probably have more turkeys available on public lands in those parts of the state as well. Uh, we have, we really have uh, pretty good turkey populations across the state. Uh, they're dependent on water, so some of the more arid parts of southeastern Utah, we don't have as many turkeys, you know, in areas where, where there's not much water. In the northern part of the state, we do have a lot of turkeys that, uh, tend to tend to spend more time on private lands because a lot of the areas with water um, are private. But uh, the central and, and uh, kind of the southwestern portion of the state are good places with a lot of turkeys available on public land. And I would imagine that uh, hunter pressure is less there, too. Yeah, you know, the, the further you can get from the Wasatch Front, you, you know, you'll thin, <laughs> thin it out just a little bit. Uh, if you get a, get a little bit further away from kind of our human population center, but uh, it, it's, uh, you know, that's, that's really one of the funnest part of, of about hunting turkeys. And probably one of the most important parts is find, finding some birds, uh, locating some birds. Because uh, while we have, you know, more turkeys than we've ever had before in Utah, there is still a, a, lot of, a lot of country out there that doesn't have birds in it. And so narrowing down your areas you're looking to hunt, doing some preseason scouting and looking, is is really critical to having a good turkey hunt. Thankfully, the hunt is a long one. You know, it's a month long hunt, yeah. 
And so it does give you some time to do some exploration and cover some ground and, and look around and, and look for, for likely places that, that hold birds where you can hunt them. Well, you've given us kind of a clue because you talked about the water, the need for water. So let's talk about given how much water we've had this year and still have at higher elevations. What does that tell us in terms of looking for birds? Yeah, so I think uh, access might be a little bit tricky this time of year. Some of the places where we have birds that live at higher elevations I know talking to some of the guys around the state, we've got some access issues still. There's some big snow drifts, and, and some countries not as accessible this year. Um, those, the birds, a lot of times this time of year, they're really keying in on that on that early spring green-up. And uh, some of our higher elevations, I don't think the green-ups really hit yet. Um, so I think our birds are probably going to be uh, concentrated a little bit lower in areas where, where the snow has melted off and we've had more green-up. Access could be a little trickier in some spots this year, um, but uh, the, the, it's just going to be a matter of getting out there and learning the area and paying attention to, to road conditions. And so I know on some of the Forest Service districts, they haven't opened some of the roads yet just because of the snow and they don't want to damage the roads or have people get in there and getting stuck. So it might might be a little tricky. You might have to, if you have some, some places where you've hunted higher, higher elevation birds in the past or seen higher elevation birds in the past, you might have to double back and, and check some mid-elevation, lower-elevation stuff this year. My guest is Dax Mangus, who is with the Division of Wildlife Resources, one of the wildlife coordinators. We're talking spring turkey hunt. Talk to me. You, you mentioned that our uh, our population, our birds are healthy and everything else. What is the size of our population of turkeys here in this state? And, and uh, as a follow-up to that, where does that fit with where it has been historically? Um. Right now, our, our turkey population uh, estimated is about 35,000 birds. And uh, if you go back, um, you know, if you go back, you can find uh, archaeological evidence, whether it's petroglyphs uh, or uh, pictographs of turkeys and some, uh, some bone fragments and some archaeological finds. But we, we got to the point in Utah where, where turkeys were, were extricated. We did not have turkeys. And uh, we, we tried... Some uh, re- to reestablish birds, some reintroduction efforts, and uh, brought in, tried several different subspecies. We tried Easterns, uh, Miriams, and Rios, and kind of had mixed success. But just in the last, oh, you know, 20, 25, 30 years, we've, uh, our birds have really started to grow. So we've gone from basically no birds to 35,000 birds. We've gone from, you know, where uh, everything was a limited draw and I know the first turkey tag I ever drew was about 15 years ago, and I think I, I put in for four or five years before I drew a turkey tag. <laughs> and now you can just buy one over the counter. Um, in some areas, our turkeys have maybe been too successful. We've got, you know, in some communities up, up next to the mountain, uh, we have a lot of turkeys that have, have figured out that people's gardens and landscaping is uh, is pretty nice. and. <laughs> We have a pretty active program throughout the state where we're actually actively trapping and translocating uh, turkeys and taking them out of some of these areas where we have some conflicts where we have too many birds in, you know, in, in neighborhoods or, or uh, you know, housing areas. And uh, this last winter we moved over 1,000 turkeys that we trapped and translocated and put them out um, in other places where we had good turkey habitat. So, so it, it's really a, a success story. And uh, to the point where in some areas you could you could maybe make the argument that they've been too successful. 
So where did you, what areas are overpopulated with turkeys? Is it just what you would expect? And that is the, the real, um, the, the real congested city type areas up against the mountains in some of our rural communities. Is that, is that it? Or are there places in the state because of habitat and everything else and lack of predation that they're becoming a problem that don't have anything necessarily to do with population centers? No, it, it's more of a kind of social issues rather than biological issues. It's, you know, along the Wasatch Front, uh, we've got, you know, these nice hillsides with good oak brush, and uh, it's, it's great turkey habitat. But then you have some areas, you know, along the benches, the eastern benches, like Bountiful Golf Course, or, you know, <laughs> up in Cache Valley. You right. know, some of these areas where we've got great turkey habitat, nice oak brush, and then it comes right down to the edge of the town. And if you're the greenskeeper at the Bountiful Golf Course, it's not not so nice when someone's trying to to sink a putt and there's a big pile of turkey doo-doo on the yeah, green. Yeah, I was going to so, say, you, know, <laughs> you don't need the extra fertilizer. No, no. So it's, it's those kind of situations. Um, you know, typically, we, we uh, uh, the birds seem to do really well. We haven't run into issues with, you know, overpopulation and having habitat, negative impacts to habitat or anything like that. It's just where we kind of have some conflicts where we end up with birds in areas where, you know, where they're overlapped with people and, yeah. and cause some conflicts. But, you know, there's there's a few isolated spots where we have that, and but uh, generally folks seem to get along with the birds pretty good, and they don't cause too much trouble. Now, mostly you've got Miriams and Rios here in the state now, correct? Yes, we do. And we've got, we tried the Easterns, and uh, they just didn't take, but the Miriams and Rios have done well, and we probably also have a lot of hybridized birds. Uh, Mirios, we call them sometimes, uh-huh. and uh, they're kind of our own Utah special turkeys that have <laughs> that have really adapted to the type of habitats we have here. But we do we do have both Miriams and Rios, and and definitely some hybrids as well. How how are they similar, and how are they different in terms of of their behaviors? And does it matter in terms of uh, trying to hunt them? Do you have to change tactics dependent on which species or subspecies is is more prevalent where you are? Um, you know, behaviors are quite similar. Their their habitat selection is a little different. Your uh, your Miriams are going to typically select you know a little bit steeper, a little bit more mountainous country. Uh, they really like ponderosa forests. Your your Rio Grande turkeys are more likely uh, if you're seeing turkeys that are down you know in the valley bottom or in an agricultural area along a creek or river bottom. Oftentimes, those are the Rio Grande turkeys. Um, as far as they respond to, you know, different tactics for hunting and, and that type of thing, really, really similar. Uh, biggest difference is probably just kind of a general little bit of difference in habitat selection. Your Miriams in the mountains, Rios in the river bottoms is that's, kind of the rule of thumb. That's the easy way to remember it then, right? So talk right. to me a little yep. bit about the uh, where are they from, where are they, they come from in terms of their native habitats. Where do we get them? So the, the birds that we had in Utah um, – Originally, uh, most likely were, were Miriams uh, because I think that's more the type of habitat that, that we have. And uh, you know, you're going to see the Rios, the Rio Grande turkeys, more in the south, uh, the southern U.S. And uh, um, but but both have done really well here in Utah and, and adapted to the habitats we have and and uh, and, and expanded and and filled a lot of these niches where we have good turkey habitat available. And and how would they have originally got here? I mean, I assume with their on pictographs and petroglyphs that they were antiqu- in antiquity. Did they just migrate naturally, or do you think native cultures brought them? How did they get here? 
man, I, I don't know. I'm probably not the guy to speculate on that. You need okay. to talk to a, an anthropologist or an archaeologist or something. But, I, but uh, yeah, but the, I'm, I'm But they've been here guy. for a while, except for when they got, I guess, uh, either hunted or... Um, what, maybe they just, uh, the populations didn't reproduce and died out naturally. But except for that period of time, they were here from the beginning, or from a long time ago anyway. That's our understanding, yep. That's interesting. Um, now, let's talk real quickly about hunting uh, techniques. I mean, you know, we've a lot of us, I think, have seen, you know, people in camo sitting uh, in a blind and, and we either, either a, a reed call or a box call or whatever, Um and then there are other people who just will will walk and will walk river bottoms and, and walk areas and try and jump turkeys or catch them in the morning or maybe catch them roosting during the day. Um, is is stand hunting the majority of hunting done in this state? Yeah, I think, I think most people are trying to, uh, you know, I think probably one of the most effective ways to hunt turkeys is to kind of find some birds and kind of pattern and figure out, you know, kind of generally where they're roosting, where they're coming down and feeding in the morning, and where they're kind of loafing areas where they're hanging out midday, and uh, and try to set up in those areas. And, uh, you know, um, you, you see a lot of, if, if you watch the hunting videos or if you get on YouTube or something, you see guys doing a lot, a lot of calling. Mm-hmm. And uh, and guys that are really good at calling, I think, can have some success there. But But for those of us like myself that maybe aren't, you know, expert callers, I think I sometimes think less is more, you know, a yeah. little bit of calling to maybe locate birds. And then I try to get myself in a good spot, place myself strategically, and then maybe a little bit more calling once the birds, you know, get close, once I'm in close. And uh, for me, I've had more success doing that than trying to call birds in over long distance. Yeah, um, I think most of our hunters in Utah, you know, are setting up, setting up in a blind, uh, maybe got some decoys, doing some calling. Um, you know, there, there are some guys that do the, do the run and gun, you know, that are kind of moving and walking. Um, we, we caution folks just to make sure you're safe. If you do that, you know, you do got guys in full camo hidden behind decoys. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, so if you're, if you're out walking, just be really careful, be really sure and identify your target before you shoot. You know, you don't want to shoot somebody's decoy if they're sitting right behind <laughs> it or something like that. But, but that's one thing just to keep in mind, you know, just safety consideration there. But I think, uh, you know, most of our hunters are probably, you know, hunting out of a blind or hiding behind some bushes, leaned up against a tree. But uh, but sometimes it pays to get out there and cover some country, too, and do a little bit more of the of the run and gun and ambush type thing. So just, just make sure you're safe. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but for the novice, probably a box call is the easiest way to start. Uh, I know I've tried read calling before, too. I mean, I just don't have that much... Uh, apparently that much talent so uh but but a box call can be pretty easy and there's some great videos available like you said on youtube and in other places online to show you what to do with the call i mean it's one thing to be able to to squeak it and have it but but to know what it is it's kind of like duck calling or goose calling but maybe even a little bit more uh finesse to it than that because your target is typically closer and has a chance to to maybe check it out a little better yeah, no, I think uh, box calls is definitely the way to start for a beginner. Um, I like the slate calls pretty good, too. I am not really great with the read. I think those take a little more talent, a little more yeah. practice, at least for yeah. me. For me, they do. But uh, box calls is a great way to start. Uh, slate's really good. There's a lot of great instructional videos, like you said, online. And uh, I, I'll practice, you know, 
uh, if I'm in the car or something, sometimes I'll practice a little bit. Um, it's it's fun if you want to drive your wife crazy. Give give a call. There you go. To your kids and let them play with it in the house, and they'll drive your drive your your significant other nuts. That's but, a uh, way to let you go out and go hunting or fishing, right? It's like take the yeah. call and get out of here. So. <laughs> yeah, but uh, they're a lot of fun. And some of the calls to uh, to to get a, a shot gobble or a response gobble from from a tom can be fun. Uh, you know, some use a raven call or an owl call. I have a, a gobble call that you shake you you shake it around like crazy, and it makes kind of a gobble sound. And and those are kind of fun. My kids really enjoy playing with those. And turkey hunting is a great hunt to get your kids out and and have some fun and. Uh, you know, after being cooped up all winter, we had kind of a long winter, a lot of snow. It, it is a great, great excuse to get out and enjoy the pretty, you know, the nice weather in the spring yeah. and the grass is green and everything's kind of coming back to life. It, it's a nice time to get out. Boy, you must have more cooperative kids than me because when my kids were young, I couldn't get them to sit still for five minutes, never mind for longer than that. Try taking them goose hunting or duck hunting in a blind and, and do that. So you got to tell me how you trained them. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I've had a lot of fun hunting turkeys with my kids. We've definitely had a few times where if I hadn't had the kids with me, probably could have got a turkey and we didn't get one. But, you know, that's part of it. That's that's part of the investment you got to make in getting out there with your kids and having fun. I mean, sometimes you're going to sacrifice a bird or two, but, but it's worth it in the long run, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the kids' uh, hunt is the 26th to the 28th, the youth turkey hunt. So that's right on us uh, right now. But the general season runs from April 29th to May 31st and uh, and again you can go buy a general season tag and uh, it should be a lot of fun the way the weather is is popping again now maybe we'll be able to get access to some of those higher elevation birds by the end of the general season hunt but either way um, it's uh, it, it's a fun hunt and as you said it's a great opportunity to get out plus the actual um, uh, you know, the birds themselves. I mean, it is something that is something you don't see every day, although we see a lot more of them now than we used to when I was a kid. Um, but that was probably when they were painting them on the walls and pictographs and everything else and petroglyphs when I was a kid. But uh, <laughs> but we see a lot of them now, and, and I think that's fun to see, unless they're in your backyard. Other than that, it's probably great to see. So, um, Dax, we appreciate you joining us again. Fun hunt. Uh, get on out and enjoy the turkey hunt. It's one of those that it kind of signals the start of spring, and typically the weather's better than it has been. But even now, it's starting to pick up a little bit, and uh, and it should be a lot of fun. And goes all the way through the end of May. So by the end of May, hopefully, we'll have spring-like weather in Utah. At least we're on the right track right now. Yeah, it, you know one one neat thing about the turkeys too is uh, you know we have the early limited entry season that, that takes place in April and. Mm-hmm. And some, some folks think, well, if I didn't draw that early limited entry season, it's not worth going out on the general season. But if you look at turkey activity, uh, a lot of times there's kind of two peaks to when they're the most vocal and the, and the gobblers are, are gobbling and making a lot of noise. And uh, one of them is in April during that, that early limited entry season, but the other peak is uh, kind of middle to the end of May. And so, um, you know, just because it's the general season doesn't mean that there's not still going to be active birds and, and birds that are that you're able to locate and call in. Uh, they, they are smart birds. They're sensitive to hunting pressure. And so if there's more people out there chasing them and calling them, it makes them a little bit tougher to hunt. But there's definitely still potential to find birds and, and get into to vocalizing back and forth with them. And, you know, I've heard people compare it to it's like hunting feathered elk. You know, it's like calling in, calling in a bull elk. <laughs> You're out there calling in the tom turkey, and it really is a fun and interactive hunt. 
And uh, just because it's general season doesn't mean there's there's not still good potential for for finding birds and, and having that interaction. Yeah, and you can still buy that permit uh, for the statewide general season uh, between now and uh, when the hunt ends. That's May thirty first, and um, the limited entry's gone. That's over. But if you want to look at the season dates and the permits, just go to the two thousand eighteen nineteen Utah Upland Game and Turkey Guidebook. It's free. You can get it online at wildlife.utah.gov and then backslash guidebooks. Uh, it's on page thirty five of that book, and they will. Uh, they will, it'll let you know what you need. Also, you can buy them at hunting license agents uh, and DWR offices. So you can get them all over the place. And uh, it is. It's a great excuse to get out if you need an excuse. And sometimes we do. Uh, you know, it's uh, And this is not a bad one because uh, you have a good chance to put some great meat on the table as well. Um, turkeys, in addition to being a fun mount, whether you're just going to do the... Uh, you're going to do the tail feather mount, or you're going to do a full body mount, whatever. Uh, either way, the meat can be really good, and uh, it doesn't have all those hormones in it. You're not going to recognize it. It doesn't look like the turkey version of Dolly Parton, but uh, it's <laughs> but but it's a great uh, it's a great meat if you get wild turkey. It's just a flavorful dark meat and um, a lot of fun to hunt and and then put it on the table. It's kind of like getting that Christmas goose or or Thanksgiving goose. It, there's a certain uh, satisfaction to being able to be the one who provides that and do it from uh, from your hunting skills so dax listen we really appreciate you joining us thank you and um i'm assuming you're going out this year on the turkey hunt so good luck and uh hope you get a big one all right thanks so much you bet thank you dax dax mangus a uh, wildlife coordinator with the division of wildlife resources about the spring turkey hunt great time to do it good opportunity to get out in the field you know lots of good stuff uh, that will allow you to uh, to get out. It's shed time. Uh, be sure and check online for the shed hunting permit situation and those kind of things. But reasons to be out in the field, reasons to get out and enjoy our great state here this time of year, besides the obvious ones with fishing and, and some of those as well. But uh, speaking of which, we are running way long in our first segment. So I'll tell you what, we're going to step aside when we come back. We will uh, talk with George and Gary. Our second segment of Inside the Outdoors on this Saturday morning is coming up next. We are back on this Saturday morning with Inside the Outdoors on a weekend that looks like it's going to be pretty darn nice. Maybe a few scattered showers around the state, depending on where you are. But uh, I'll tell you what, it is definitely a pleasant change from what we have uh, from what we have had for the last oh, what I don't know how long, too long. Let's put it that way. Welcome back, everybody, and. Uh, George is going to join us right now, as he does every week at this time. So, George, you got to be feeling good because I know that your days off over the last couple of weeks have not exactly coincided with uh, with support from Mother Nature. This week, um, well, this week may not be that much better because you told me that Tuesday, which is the day, next day, the weather forecast is for some uh, moisture, is your day off. But hopefully, we can get around it just a little bit. Well, and, and you know, it's it's warming up enough that. 
Maybe I'll just put rain gear on and go anyways. There you go. Yeah, that's true. It's not like these winter storms anymore, and that's, that is that's good news. So let's talk about it, because I know you've been getting reports from your people out in the, uh, in the field, but some places have started to pop a little bit with this warmer weather. They have, you know, and, and close by, my number one choice would probably be Deer Creek. Yep. Um, you know, the, the trout fishing's been uh, really good there, but um, people are picking up walleye. Um, picking up some bass, so it's it's starting to get in that zone where things are really going to start um, uh, going at a rapid pace. That'd be my number one choice. Close in, uh, my far away choice would be Lake Powell. Yeah, because that I hear that is absolutely on fire as well. It is. You know, the bass fishing, um, the temperature is just perfect for uh, the bass to to really start getting active. Um, it's not quite the spawning temperature yet, but um, we're catching some nice bass. Walleye fishing is, is doing really well. Um, stripers, when you find them, um, they, they seem to still be sticking together, so you can catch several of them out of a school, and occasionally a really big striper. The other thing is, that to, you know, back to the Deer Creek thing, and, and, and obviously Lake Powell as well, but you've got multiple species, so there's always a chance to move off of one into another if that's what you need. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and I would, that's what I like about going to those places is that, you know, if, if the trout fishing's not on, I'm going to go bass fishing mm-hmm. or vice versa. Walleye fishing, it's not going, I'll go bass fishing. Um, Lake Powell, I'm going to, I'm going to have something rigged up for just about everything there so that I can, you know, I want to catch some walleye so I can take them home and eat. Yep. I want to catch some bass to have some fun and, and who knows what else might be uh, thrown in for an adventure. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm with you when it comes to Bear Lake. Bear Lake. When it comes to Deer Creek, um, Bear Lake though is one we ought to talk about too here pretty quick. But uh, but Deer Creek for me Monday is probably going to be my trip to Deer Creek for the week and see if I can't uh, uh, pull something out of there. I'd really like to be able to pull a walleye or two out of there because I know I've seen them on the graph. I know they're there, and I know there's some good sized fish in there as well. Uh, and and you know once you once you locate what depth they're in yeah uh, it's just a matter of figuring out what's it going to take to convince them to bite mm-hmm. but once you get that going uh, typically at deer creek uh, if you can catch walleye there's a two-week window at deer creek where the walleye fishing is just like it's it's incredible and then uh, before and after that if you can catch walleye on a consistent basis you're an expert walleye <laughs> um yeah, the, the rest of us, it's, it's man, I caught a couple of walleye. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. If you're looking for sheer numbers, you're probably not going to get walleye fishing. Is typically in in our state is not sheer numbers. Nothing like Canada. I've been up in northern Saskatchewan where you know a little yellow curly tail trolled behind a, a you know a, a tiller lund with about a 15 horse on it will produce probably three four hundred walleye a day. Now they're not big, but boy, the numbers are absolutely astronomical. Yep, they they are, and, and you know, you know, speaking of walleye, Willard Bay is starting to to, to heat up, um, and I think it's it's going to pop as well. Um, but you know, that the crappie that we've got to be really close. I haven't got a temperature reading out of Willard, but we got to be really close <laughs> um, to some fantastic crappie fishing. So you think we're actually going to catch a fish here pretty quick at Willard Bay this year, huh? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, it's it's. Uh, uh, hope springs eternal. I think yeah. that's the saying. <laughs> yes. No, I I agree with you because last year, man, last year, you know, 
for me, down out of Utah County, that's a long drive, uh, pulling a boat up there. And uh, I made that drive unsuccessfully probably eight or nine, maybe ten times last year. And at some point, my car said, hey, we're putting a lot of miles on here. We're not getting a lot out of it. So <laughs> this this year, I haven't made the pilgrimage yet. I'd, I've, it's going to take some talking to talk Huey into going up north as well. So we got our buddy, our buddy Fitch lives up there, though. So we'll just take his boat out of Farmington and not have to drag the boat. But I'll tell you what. That's a long drive when you come home skunked, and we did enough last year. Well, and, and you know, the, the, the thing with Willard is, is you're, you're going to go and you're going to have one of those incredible days that, that are, it's just like phenomenal. Well, I'm it's, waiting for that. I, well, and, and, and I've had them, but it's a long like, time. Yeah, exactly. I'm the same way. You know, I've had them, and I keep going back. And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> and it just kicks my butt, kicks my butt, and then I'll have another awesome uh, trip, yep. and then guess yep. what? I'm going back again, and I'm getting my butt kicked. So, yeah, it's kind of like golf. But, you know, it, you might have one <laughs> good game every three weeks, and it's just enough to keep you coming back. But it, it in between, the drought seems eternal. Yes, yep, for sure. <laughs> so, it's, but you know, in, in, in Willard, you could be there any any given time, and 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 really get into the fish and, and whack a bunch of fish. And other times, like I've experienced, uh, I'll go there and. I'm like, what am I doing wrong, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, but there, there are some dandy fish in there, and the, the walleye fishing there, based on what we saw with their netting and their spawning, it's going to be incredible. Is that a lake you'd rather bottom bounce than than pull maybe a Rapala or something like that? Or I mean, what what what's your favorite technique for walleye? There are times when obviously it's starvation, you can cast to them and everything else. But what would you what do you prefer to fish as far as a technique? Well, so I prefer to do um, bottom bouncers with a crawler harness, mm-hmm. um, except a Willard. Willard, uh, I like to troll cranks um, because, number one, I'm going to catch walleye. Yeah. And number two, I'm going to catch wipers. Right. Um, and a lot of times you can do the same exact lure and catch both fish. And catfish. what depth you're at. And yeah. catfish, yeah, lots of catfish. Um, and uh, Willard Bay, they put up a really good fight. Yes, they do. So. <laughs> you know, I'm going to troll cranks up there, and, I'm, and uh, I have two favorites that I use, and that's a number five shad wrap, and the other one's a number five uh, frenzy flicker shad. Yeah, and, and I'll vary the colors: purple, silver, black. You know, uh, I've done decent on gold and black, so it's, it's a kind of a. But I have all of those in my arsenal because I know they work at Willard Bay. Do you uh, do you like to fish them with just the diving from the lip? Do you do you like to put them down with something or um, how do, how do you I, I, like to rig it? Long line them, just yeah. Um, and I'll usually start at like seventy-five feet back behind the boat. That's where a line counter reel is pretty handy. Yes. So I'll start at seventy-five, um, and that typically puts me, depending on what line, the diameter I have, I'm going to be about oh, ten to twelve feet. Um, I'll go back as far as one hundred and twenty-five, and that usually gets me down about fourteen feet, um, and then. You know, I haven't mastered. I know how to do side planers, but I haven't mastered them yet. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. And I don't like having that on the uh, the line, even though you bring it in and clip it off. I still don't like it. A walleye's not that great a fighting fish anyway, and I'd just as soon not have to take a third of the or half of the the line that's out and bring it in with that side planer before I can un- unclip it. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, long lining's an effective technique, and, and, and I've done that using the exact same lures at Fish Lake and just spanked the rainbows. Yeah. Um, 
So it's it's an effective way to do it, and it seems to work pretty good at Willard. Now, you know, a, a lot of times I'll go to Yuba, and they're catching walleye at Yuba. I'm gonna it's it's gonna be spinner rigs at, at Yuba and bottom bouncers, um, and I'll starvation I alternate between that, um, jerk baits, and jigging a crawler. Yeah, and then and then I I like to use a thin fin as well um, at Utah Lake. I, I like a thin fin, and you know, with a little they're, noise they're, to they're it. They're the old time. Um, untapped secret um, because they still work. You know, they're, they're yeah. kind of tough to come by nowadays. Yeah, they are. And you don't have them in mine. your box. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I cherish mine, but um, that was one of the deadliest lures ever on Utah Lake for walleye. Yes. And it still works, um, but most people, they've, they've gone on to other things because thin fins are pretty tough to come by. Yeah. Um, they're still made, and they still work, um, but they're not as readily accessible as they used to be. So let me ask you then, too, because uh, a lot of people don't realize when they're long lining that sometimes you don't get the depth that you're anticipating because you get buoyancy from your from your line, depending on the kind of line you're using. It used to be when all we used was the old monofilament, you definitely have to worry about buoyancy. Not so much maybe today with the new carbon fiber lines and things like that. Well, and, you know, uh, uh, so in monofilament, um, the thicker the diameter, yeah. the more it's going to push that lure up. Right. So a lot of times I'll use 8 and 10-pound tested monofilament. Um, fluorocarbon is actually advantageous because the line is denser and it actually sinks. So, and, and you have to kind of, you know, pay attention to what lure you're using and stuff so you're not catching the bottom. But fluorocarbon will actually take it down a little deeper because yes. the line itself will sink. Um, so, and... and um, uh, super lines tend to be a little thinner in diameter, so there's less resistance. So you, you kind of balance it out, and sometimes, you know, you want that thicker line so it's up further in the water column, and sometimes you want it down deep, so you kind of manipulate what you're doing based on where you're going to be fishing. Yeah, and there's yeah, there's a lot of a lot to it. People think, and and with trout fishing, you get away with it a little bit more, where you just kind of whatever is on your reel, you can put it out back, and chances are things might work. But when you're fishing for some of these different species that that inhabit different levels of the water column, uh, almost exclusively at certain times, you've kind of got to be aware of what your line properties are when they're out there. Well, and and the other component of it is speed. You know how yes. fast you're going when you're trolling. Um, because the, the faster you go, some lures will actually ride up. Yeah, and, and others will you, dig. You think it's, yeah, you think they they dig down, but some of them will actually ride up. So you got to balance the speed, the line diameter, what lure you have, and to get to where you need to be at that time of the year to catch those fish. See, I'm mining your walleye knowledge now, so that's good. We're getting a free lesson here. Let me let me ask you about the speed that you like to troll for walleye this time of year. This time of the year, I'm going to go about one and a half to two and a half miles an hour. Okay. Um, and just kind of, and then when I when I'm trolling uh, crawler harnesses, it's usually right around one to one and three quarters, or maybe two, depending on how aggressive they are. When they're when they're neutral, a little slower, a little bigger blade with a little thump on it. Mm-hmm. Um, when they're aggressive, you go to a, a little bit smaller blade that goes a little faster. Um, so it, you, you kind of change it up based on that, and and I I'm not a you know Willard Bay you can go fast when things are really on you can get up to three and a half miles an hour for walleye and be effective, but you know this time of the year it's still a little off so I'm going to go a little slower. Yeah. 
Well, George, we appreciate the visit as always, and uh, I'm hoping you get a chance to do a little R&D this week. And give me a ring when you want to go give me a walleye lesson up on Willard or on uh, Deer Creek because I could definitely use it, believe me. It'd be, nice. It'd be nice not to have to come on here every week and go, boy, if I could only catch walleye, life would be better. <laughs> and I know you've got the secret, so I'm going to tap you here in a week or two. Sounds good. All right, buddy. George Summer, our uh, resident expert, joins us every week. And the great thing is he's got, he's got the, the knowledge across so many different, um, you know, different species of fish and then t- techniques and methodologies to use them here in the state. So we are definitely going to tap his expertise here in the near future. Ah, uh, it's happy place. Go to your happy place, right? You know, this, this reminds me of uh, the kid in the kind of knee-length, um, well, it could, be, it could be the coveralls, or it could be just the knee-length shorts with a straw hat um, and maybe a cane pole or something, okay? Because it's from the Andy Griffith Show. But it also reminds me of what Gary Winterton must have looked like about uh, 45 years ago. So he's, he's with me now. How you doing, brother? I'm doing good. Yeah, 45 would have been a good age. That's, yep. That puts me right around that five range. Yeah, freckles you know, the, and yep. the knee length overalls. That's those were those were big back in the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of what I figured. So anyway. you, don't, you don't see them anymore. I'd like to see you in a set of those. I uh, know you wouldn't. Trust me. Especially <laughs> not these pasty whites. Not right now, man. I'll tell you. So be scaring the fish. Hey, you had a fun fishing trip this week. One of those where you almost guaranteed to get something. Yeah, you know, gosh. Let's let's talk for just a minute. You know, you and I have been out a couple of times, and it's been tough. And I think because we've had this influx of water, the reservoirs are raising, you know, high and low pressures rolling through. It's made some fishing here in this valley a little tougher. So we tried something a little different. We got out the bows and went up to Deer Creek and rolled up into the shallows, and there's carp up in there. And it's a great time to really help the lake, in my opinion, because of the overabundance of carp that we've got in Deer Creek and a few of the other reservoirs, and it's such a fun thing to do. Um, carp fishing with a bow is just awesome this time of year. Yeah, and it, it is with this water high, you've got some vegetation for them, especially I'm assuming you went up towards the river arm, but you probably also went up towards Wallsburg as well, didn't you? Yeah, you can go you can go way north. I mean, you can go clear past the river, go up into the you know, that Wallsburg arm yep. up in there, you can get clear back into the trees. And when that grassland floods, the carp roll in there to spawn. And we're still a little ways away from the spawn, probably a week or two or three, but they're up in there, and so they're milling around. And it's really fun because you you just kind of drift along in that boat with the trolling motor on. And we use a converted duck boat that's got a platform that you can take on and off, and so you're up on the front. And just the electric trolling motor... And as you drift along quietly, you just you just stand there, and when you spot the carp, you, you let the arrows fly. And what's fun is, you know, it's not as easy as it looks. No. Because the angle that you're shooting in at, the light refraction, how the arrow hits the water and starts to plane, whichever direction it wants to plane away, up, down, changes the game substantially. So it's really quite fun because you get to shoot a lot. And obviously no limit on carp. So we put one of those big brute, you know, plastic garbage. Know it probably yeah, it's what is it? Probably thirty-five gallon, forty gallon. Oh, at least garbage can. Yeah, we fill that clear full, and it's just a blast. 
and then take them home, put them in your garden. They make great fertilizer. Yeah, exactly. You know, it used to be that um, with the carp, you know, they changed the regulations on, on carp and burbot in a few places where you're, you don't have to, there's no want and waste with those. Right. And so you can actually take them home. And if you really want to do, you want to do your garden some good, you, before you till it, you know, dig a big hole around some of your fruit trees and some of your plant beds and bury them deep, you know, three feet deep where you're not going to disturb them during the summer. And then just cover them up nice and nice and tight. It does a couple of things. Great fertilizer. The worms love it. And then when you go out and, you know, water those flower beds and you need night crawlers for your next fishing trip, you'll be surprised what's there. Well, then and then there's always the smoked carp, you know, where you just put it on a board and then, you know, smoke it over open flame and everything else. And when you're done, just take that carp right off the board and eat that board. It's, it's terrific. <laughs> I've heard that same thing for catfish. But here's something cool, Steve. So last year I was really interested. I wanted to know, do people really eat carp? And if you go to YouTube and you look yes. up how to, how to prepare carp, there's a lot of really good examples of folks that, Bowfish for carp, they scale them up, and then they they show how you fillet slash cut them into steaks and debone them, and and it's a timely process. But I've never had it, so I can't speak from experience. But what I can say is these folks on YouTube say it's it's excellent meat if you're willing to go through the time to prepare, yeah, and season and marinate and then cook on the smoker. They say it's a really good, flavorful meat and. Way back in the day, you know, I, late 1800s, the, you know, Department of Agriculture, they're the ones that came and dropped them in all the lakes across the West via train as a food source. Yeah, so you can figure the government, the government would be behind it. Uh, they would be behind yeah. this. You know that. Yeah, and they, you know, I, I forget his name, uh, uh, who was running the Department of Agriculture at the time. I'll have to look it up, but... That was his food source plan through the western United States as the railway came out. They brought carp out and planted them in these lakes and reservoirs as an abundant food source. So somebody must have liked to eat them. And <laughs> I guess, you know, anything prepared correctly can be eaten. I yeah. don't eat them. Well, they, they, are a, they used to eat blood pudding in England, too. In fact, they still eat blood uh, pudding, too. So because somebody used to eat it is not a great criteria for continuing to. Right. I got to say, yeah, you lose me a blood pudding for sure. <laughs> but the shooting them is a blast. And if you'll go around to Sportsman's Warehouse, they've got a great setup down there. They've got those, uh, the nice bows that have kind of that infinite draw length. So you don't have to have a specific draw length like you would length mm-hmm. like you would with your regular bow. You, you, you buy the real set, and they've got a full series of fiberglass arrows with the different types of tips. They can get you all set up. And the new reels, are so much nicer than what what they had in the past. They handle the line retrieving, and part of it is having it um, allow that line to come off freely and smoothly when you shoot the arrow. Yeah, which gives you you know a better trajectory and and a uh, little bit more distance. Now it be you know we make some long shots, which is really fun. But then you know you miss, you just reel your arrow back and, and keep going. So if you haven't tried carp fishing, flash with a bow. Yep. And you want to do it, Deer Creek's one of the prime lakes to do it. You can do it at, at um, Utah Lake, too, but it's a little bit different. You know, you're looking for the carp that are sucking air as the water gets yeah. warm. But at Deer Creek, you can actually see them because the water's crystal clear right now up in those weeds. 
and boy, you will see some Volkswagen-sized cars. <laughs> well, the good news is it's another example of what to get out and do. We talked about turkey hunting earlier and everything else. It's just another thing to get out and do in the spring. So we're going to check it out tonight, 11.05, right after talking sports on KUTV Channel 2. It is Hooked on Utah. And buddy, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Awesome. And uh, let me know how your trip to Deer Creek goes next week. You got it. Talk to you soon, buddy. All righty. Gary Winterton, and we'll step aside. Final segment uh, will be coming up in just a few. Well, that is about going to do it. Holy cow, the hour has gone quickly. They're giving me the hard rap here. They said uh, we got too long-winded again, as per usual. But I want to thank my guest, Dax Mangus, from the Division of Wildlife Resources, talking about that spring turkey hunt. You might want to consider going down and buying that open tag just for the heck of it. Uh, You know, the good news is you'll always see turkeys during the off-season and when you don't have the tag. So you know what to do? The season's coming up, 29th to the uh, 29th of April through the 31st of uh, May. And it is going to be a general season. You can go buy a tag. So go buy a tag. Go get yourself a turkey. What a fun way to do it. And even if you don't, you get a great opportunity to be out in the outdoors over the next little while. Uh, Again, thanks to Gary and George, as always. And most importantly, thanks to you for listening. And we will be back next week, Saturday morning, right here between 8 and 9 o'clock on 97.5 The Zone on Inside the Outdoors. Until then, my friends, as always, have a great week. And you have been warned.